This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Hi, folks. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington, host of the podcast, Transformative Principal and author of the book, School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I'm a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. This is a production of the Center for Cyber Ethics. Buoyancy Digital is proud to be the inaugural mission partner for the Cybertraps podcast. A digital advertising consultancy with an ethos, Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in the digital media since 1997 and has overseen 300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and being accredited brand and audience safe advertising sales solutions, media buying and organizational training for media publishers, please contact Buoyancy Digital at buoyancydigital.com or at Scott R Media on LinkedIn. Hola, Jethro. Hello. I kind of ran out of breath on that last one. <laughs> well, a lot of words. You know, it is exciting stuff. I completely get that. <laughs> it is. Well, it, not as exciting as who we have today as a guest, though. This is true. And this is a real uh, pleasure for the two of us to have a chance to talk to Diana Graber, who is uh, someone who is I've known for quite a while and have done some work with in terms of the cyber safety issues that we all care about, but this is going to be a really interesting conversation. So Diana Graber is an expert on digital literacy. She writes, presents, and is interviewed about technology's impact upon human behavior. Her no-nonsense approach comes from being an educator, a media producer, an academic, and 
most of all a mom. She is the co-founder of CyberWise, and she developed and still teaches cyber civics, the popular middle school digital literacy program currently being taught in schools in 47 U.S. states and internationally. So we'll have to find out who the three holdouts are. Uh, she served as adjunct faculty teaching media psychology to graduate students. Her paper, New Media Literacies, A Developmental Approach, was published in the Journal of Media Literacy Education, JMLE. And in 2019, she published Raising Humans in a Digital World, Helping Kids Build a Healthy Relationship with Technology. And please visit the show notes for a link to that or go straight to Amazon and look it up. So anyway, Diana, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Well, it's a real pleasure to have you here. There's a lot of stuff to cover. I think it's yeah. been probably a few years since we spoke directly and a few things have happened. Well, the great thing about working in this field, of course, is that it always does, which you know obviously keeps right. it interesting. One of the things I like to do uh, when we get ourselves started with a new guest is give you a chance to talk a little bit about your journey. How did you wind up doing this? What led you to it? Wow. What a journey it's been. <laughs> well, my background actually a long time ago, I was a video and film producer. And when my own kids approached middle school, I went back to school to get a master's in media psychology and social change, uh, thinking it would help me with my film and video career. But what happened was I became immersed in digital literacy and really interested in how the world was changing and mostly how it was impacting kids and how kids weren't being prepared to meet this new landscape. So that really changed my entire focus, made a huge U-turn. Um, at the same time, right when I was graduating from that program, my own children's school experienced its first cyberbullying incident. And so the principal at the time asked if I would help him address that. So that's when we started developing in-classroom lessons to teach kids how to be good digital citizens. Um, and when and was this roughly, Diana? Boy, that was around 2009. Yeah, so a long time ago. So and just really at the start of social media. Exactly. It's right after the iPhone had come out. And so these were like really the first kids that were using like mobile phones and texting. So it was a whole new world. And it was funny because the, the little incident that happened was on Facebook. And I remember the principal saying to me, what the heck is Facebook? <laughs> you know? I mean, he was like a deer in the headlights. You know? Yes. Unfortunately, that is how many principals have been over the last several years. Right. So right. It's, it's really challenging when they don't know what's, what is possible out there. Right. And, and luckily, you know, we were at a charter school um, and I had been really involved as we spoke earlier. That was where I was on the board. And, and so they really knew me and they knew that I had put a lot of energy into this program. I'd written a paper that had been published. So at the time, the school had a block of lessons called civics once a week. So we just changed it to cyber civics, very, not really with much thought of the name <laughs> and started teaching these lessons. And so we developed it into a three-year program that addresses digital citizenship, information literacy, and media literacy. So it became this really comprehensive program and other schools are like, wait a second, we, how do you do this? What are the lessons? And so he really encouraged me to put them online. And um, here we are 11 years later being taught in schools. And actually we're in 48 US states right now. And seven other <laughs> that's good. So, so the holdouts are dropping. That's that's fantastic. So if you would, Dana, tell us a little bit about the the structure of the course and the kinds of topics that you go over. It sounds like a really useful tool in this particular era. Oh my gosh! You know what? It's we've had such a year because um, we quickly made our lessons uh, available to teach via Zoom, which is what I do actually as well. 
And they work very well that way because of the breakout rooms and kids can still be collaborative. But the whole idea of cyber civics is to engage kids in activities like summer lessons, summer games, some simple scenarios that address really the whole spectrum of digital literacy. And, you know, we start with digital citizenship with the sixth graders, sometimes fifth graders, and teach them how to be a safe and responsible a citizen of the digital world. So we teach them what citizenship means today, you know, how to be the same good person online that you are offline. We talk about cyberbullying. We talk about how to communicate in online spaces. Um, we look at their, how they present themselves online. And then after we give them the solid foundation, we move into what's really important too is information literacy, which is teaching kids how to do research in the online world, how to use Wikipedia, how to write good search queries, how to read a search results page. And then the final year, which is so much fun to teach, is media literacy for positive participation. We start looking at media misinformation, fake news, visual literacy, stereotypes in the media, and then we look at future technologies. So it's a super comprehensive curriculum. It is a blast to teach, and it makes a, such a difference for these kids. So do you, do you take a stance on whether or not kids should have devices or do you recognize that uh, families are going to make that choice and then you just provide support to help them make good choices with those devices they have? That's a, that's a hard question to answer, uh, but I'll do my best. So in my book, I, I re recommend something called digital on-ramps, which is really introducing technology developmentally appropriately. So that's what I recommend. Cyber civics is intentionally taught and started in fifth or sixth grade because we believe that kids need to have a fully developed critical thinking area in the brain, ethical thinking, and that doesn't happen until about 12 or 13 years of age. So we intentionally create lessons that make kids use that part of the brain. And so they have to be done at that age level. And what's been really lovely, at least in the classes I've teaching, taught, is a lot of my fifth and sixth grade classes, the parents say, hey, we're going to hold off devices until kids graduate from digital citizenship. And it's like a great gift for these kids. And then they go into it super knowledgeable and they just use the devices very differently. Yeah. I, I really like that approach because it, the idea of digital on-ramps, I think is just spot on. The other part of that is being able to have something that shows that, you know, how to use the technology before you get it and not just know how to use it technically, but know how to use it ethically, which I think is, is really important. And if you can have that kind of a balance, then your the kids, when they get the devices are going to be much more knowledgeable about how to behave appropriately as well. Yeah. And that ethical thinking piece is so important because everything we do online requires ethical thinking, you know, just about everything. And that's where you get into trouble. And these poor kids that are nine and 10 making these mistakes, it's not their fault. Their brain cannot engage in ethical thinking yet. So, you know, that 13 minimum age of use for social media is such an important thing for parents to remember and to follow for so many reasons. But that's just one of them. Well, sure, Diana, and this is this is one of the reasons that I did that relatively uh, short book, Raising Cyberethical Kids, because mm -hmm. I wanted to get at precisely these kinds of issues. I approach this, I think, a little bit differently, but along the same lines as you, when I talk about thinking about what is the least feasible technology that a child needs in order to accomplish whatever it is, and obviously the onset of the pandemic has upended a lot of that. I mean, how has that affected your concept of cyber civics? 
Well, it's it's made a big impact. And um, a lot of the schools that we work with are Waldorf schools. I don't know if you are familiar with that community, but those are schools that, that generally do not allow technology at all until the middle school. So this whole pandemic has put really turned them upside down. Like they have had to just change so dramatically, but it's been lovely to see because they've really embraced cyber civics because they need it right now. And a, a lot of formerly tech adverse teachers have just risen to the occasion and really learned how to use technology in, in really creative and thoughtful ways. So that's been lovely to see. And then as far as the other schools we work with, um, the, the ability for them to transition the lessons online has been great to see because it's one of those things where these kids are using technology so much, let's at least set aside 50 minutes a week to teach them how to use it wisely. So that's been fun to see. I, I think one of the real challenges of the pandemic for schools was trying to cram everything they did in person into an online container. And yeah. many schools just said, we're just going to recreate everything we did there. And I think, especially with a Waldorf school where they're not interested in technology to then all of a sudden go into having Zoom class meetings every single day, I think was just a reaction instead of an intentional plan, which it makes sense that they would do that. But now schools are putting devices in kids' hands way more than they ever have in the past. And even providing access to the internet as well for families that don't have that. And so to me, this brings up a whole other area of different challenges that, that schools are, are that people are facing schools and families about how to manage that. What kind of support do schools need as they're making those kinds of shifts and what kind of support do families need as well? Well, let's start with the families. Um, what I haven't mentioned is we have a resource site called CyberWise. Our um, tagline is no grown-up left behind. And so we provide families a website full of research and information and resources on all kinds of digital media topics. Um, we send a newsletter out every couple of weeks. Like you guys, we do a little CyberWise chat every few weeks where we address different topics and try to make that available to parents. So that's the parent side. As far as the teacher side, within cyber civics, there's um, send home parent letters that align with every lesson that the teacher teaches. But the feedback that we get is oftentimes the teachers are learning as much as the kids as they deliver these lessons, because the way they're delivered, it's really not like you're the sage on the stage. You're like engaging kids in an activity. And then a lot of times the feedback you're getting from the kids, you're learning so much about what they're doing. So it's really brought teachers up to speed about what digital literacy is. And then of course we do a ton of teacher workshops and parent presentations just to support schools as much as we can. And what's been lovely about the pandemic is like Fred, probably I, I used to be on a plane every week visiting schools and now, you know, I can't do that anymore, but I'm able to reach so many more schools via zoom. You know, I can be in a different state, in the same day, you know? So that part's been kind of nice. It's, it, it's an interesting thing, Diana. There's, there's absolutely no question that part of the reason that this podcast arose is because I had a lot more time on my hands yeah. than I yeah. had pre-pandemic. It will be interesting, and I'll be curious to get your thoughts on this, as to what pieces of our kind of pandemic learning environment are going to continue going forward. So that's yeah. one question for you. And then slightly unrelated, but not entirely, is my question to you about 
the concept of dealing with the flow of information for kids, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, they're exposed to so much anyway, and now the pandemic has intensified all of that. And this debate over what is fake or what is misinformation is so foundational, it seems to me, to our ability to function as a society. And parental attitudes towards the, the concept of information and what's good information and what is not good information, yeah. I mean, this is a topic, like you guys, it's near and dear to my heart, right? Um, so the first thing is when I do these presentations, what I show parents is what kids are seeing within their apps, like TikTok and Snapchat and Instagram. Kids are getting current events, like every second, I mean, intense current events. So they are so much more knowledgeable about what's happening in the world right now. So two things, scary, especially if you're a young kid and you're alone in your bedroom and you're reading about coronavirus and your parents are nowhere to explain it to you. And number two is there's a lot of stuff that's just fake and wrong. And, you know, a kid has no mechanism to analyze that. So it's something that we hit so hard in cyber civics and we hit it again and again and again, because misinformation is something that cannot be taught in one lesson. Kids need to understand how news is made today, how it's different from the old days, who makes it, how to analyze it, where do you go to find real information? How do you compare that to what you see in the apps, where to report information? I mean, it goes on and on. It's a very, it's a very layered thing, especially for a kid who's just developing those critical thinking skills. So super important right now. I mean, what's, we have got to address this because we cannot keep going on this trajectory where people are making decisions based on misinformation. I, I couldn't agree more. As a matter of fact, um, Jethro's heard me say this far too many times, but I'm in the process of finishing up a manuscript for a book called The Rise of the Digital Mob. And yes, the title you know implies a certain worldview and so forth. But I do think having watched you know, different generations of kids mm -hmm. come along, that the impact of algorithms in terms of what children are shown and then how those algorithms lead them into more and more extreme content is probably the most significant issue we face. I know. And like, it's pretty easy to teach kids how that happens, you know? And so if you empower the kids with the knowledge of how they're being targeted and used by social media, I tell you, teaching that lesson to kids that are early adolescents that are, that are like hate being manipulated or told what to do, it's powerful. And they will make changes so that they are not controlled by anybody. So I know that sounds like, no way, no way she's making that up. But I, I see it happen. You know, I've, I've had kids read the privacy policies of TikTok and say, wow, this is not fair. You know? That's wonderful. Education's power. So you're tapping into their innate rebelliousness. That's a really cool Oh, yeah. Idea. Full on for everything. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the other challenge with this is I, I recently read an analysis of the New York Times uh, headline A-B testing which is where they change their headlines to, uh, you know, yeah. uh, make them more visible to people. And so even a, you know, the paper of record, the New York times is still in a way manipulating us to get the click through headlines that people actually go and read. And so being aware of that, I think is so important for kids to understand. And just knowing that helps me, helps me personally feel like I can make better decisions. Whereas, 
you know, three weeks ago before I read this, I had, I didn't know that that was happening, but it's something that once you know it, like you said, knowledge is power and it really does make a difference. Yeah. It's funny. Cause as you say that, I was thinking of one of the most fun lessons I teach is I have the kids write a clickbait headline for the three little pigs. And oh my gosh, they're hilarious with the kids come up with the like, shocking news, house of straw, you know, does this or whatever, but it's fun. Like, and that's how they learn what clickbait is, you know, and they'll never forget it. Cause they have so much fun, like trying to outdo each other with their clickbait headlines for a kid's fairy tale. Well, Diana, you'll like this story then because somebody was doing a media literacy program in a high school and the assignment was for the kids to create a fake news story so that they could have a discussion about what constituted fake news. And in a very 21st century moment, this kid created a news story that basically said that the principal was selling drugs <laughs> on campus and he made it look like the New York Times and somebody took a photo and put it on Snapchat and it spread all through the community. <laughs> it was such an incredible hands-on oh, lesson as to yeah, how uh, misinformation how goes viral. Right, yikes. And so then it, hopefully the kids had learned about digital reputation and how that would affect the yeah. digital reputation Jeez. and on and on, you know. <laughs> well, and, and right. And now you've got these Google searches. Will he be permanently associated yeah. with this? It's sobering, yeah. really, to think about the way in which information plays out in yeah. our world. So, you know, getting kids at a point where they're starting to be consumers is so critical. Exactly. I mean, I give up on adults, honestly, <laughs> you know, the stuff you see with the social media, like, okay, come on. Like, but what's, what's nice is like, I, uh, one of the big things that we really encourage is teaching kids how to, if they see some misinformation, alert the, where you see it, tell Snapchat or tell Instagram. And so I, I do that a lot within my own social media networks. And I always come back and share the stories with the students and they're like, Oh, right on, you know? <laughs> It's pretty cool. So I, I think that that's, that's certainly one powerful way to, to help with that. But more importantly, how do you teach kids to communicate those things to their peers when they're spreading that kind of information? Because that's something that, you know, you said give up on adults and there's, there's some wisdom to that. I'm not going to lie, but we also really can't <laughs> yeah. do that. We need to help adults. Oh, I, I mean, that was interesting. I know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so how do you help kids uh, know how to combat that when they see it? Well, that's part of the beauty of when you teach a cohort of uh, students together, whether it's online or in the classroom, you're teaching them to become like a community where they understand common norms and, and they take those norms into their online world. So when they together see thing, under, learn about fake news or learn about digital reputation stuff and all that, and they see one of their peers doing something that they just talked about the week before, oftentimes they'll call them out on it or they'll watch out for each other. And that's, that's what really works because we can't be there every moment in the on, offline world nor do they want us there. So we have to start empowering kids to have each other's backs. And that's really what teaching them together does. Yeah. Explain that a little bit more. Cause I think I understand what you're saying, but I think it'd be beneficial to clarify what that means by teaching them to have each other's backs it happens naturally because they're already together. Yeah. Well, I'll give you an example. So 
Um, I, we had had digital reputation lessons ad nauseum when the kids were in sixth grade. And then we had a new student join the class that missed those lessons. And, you know, we're in California, the girl used Instagram. And so she posted a pretty provocative picture of herself on Instagram. She's in a bikini, you know, lounging somewhere. And so one of the boys came into the class and went right up there. He said, that was really stupid. It's going to ruin your digital reputation. And she like, burst into tears. She's like, what the heck, you know, thinking like, what boy wouldn't like that picture, you know? <laughs> and so he delivered that in a very crude manner, but the, the long and short of it is she went home and she took the picture down. So, you know, I don't want everyone to do it in such a, you know, I maybe do it in a kinder way, but the long and short of it is he was kind of watching out for her. And, and in the long run, it was to her benefit not to have that picture associated with her digital reputation. Well, and I think one of the real lessons from that story is the power of peers right. in terms of helping each other figure out what is and what is not okay. Because if a principal or a teacher were to say that, yeah. then the hackles would go up and... Exactly. You know, or they block us. They take it elsewhere where we couldn't see it. You know, when what I see the kids doing now is like before they tag each other, they ask permission offline, just all those common courtesies that are part of being a good citizen. Right. And so, like you said, so, well, we cannot tell kids to do this, but if we lead them along the way, show them why, let them figure it out for themselves together, they start, you know, kids are innately pretty smart and pretty empathetic. And so together they start watching out for each other in these spaces where we can't be. What I love about that story that you shared was that the, the boy was concerned because he knew yeah. how most boys would react. And so he said, this isn't okay because I respect you as a person enough to say, this isn't how you should be portraying yourself. And, and what I see in, in my work as a principal so often is that kids who care about each other do actually do those things. That's, that's second nature. And that's something that when they understand what the issue is, then they're very comfortable um, calling each other out, even if it is in a rude way, but they're, they're just being direct and clear. And as Brene Brown says, being clear is being kind. And, and yes, that might've been a little, she may have been upset at first, but I'm sure in the end, she appreciated his directness and saying, right. this isn't, this is going to mess up your digital reputation. That's not good. And, and right. we got to recommend, we got to recognize and commend that kind of behavior when we see it in kids. See, all of this reminds me of that scene from Jerry Maguire, where <laughs> Jerry says something about how, I think you're the one who put the brutal into brutal honesty. <laughs> <laughs> how you do this stuff does matter. But I think what you're getting at, Diana, and, and uh, Jethro, you as well, is this idea that it really isn't about the devices. It's not about the apps. It's about the behavior. And so yeah. what you're really getting at with the cyber yeah. civics, Diana, is the the foundational behaviors that kids can take to any device or any social media platform. Yeah. And that's why, you know, really this curriculum was born out of my program of media psychology. You know, it's all about that. And so that's what we always tell the teachers that the, the schools that we go to is that these, you know, Snapchat today, something else tomorrow, it, things are going to change and you can't keep up, but kids aren't going to change and their brains aren't going to change. So we have to educate their brains so that they're ready for whatever is next. And how did you know Jerry Maguire was my favorite movie? 
<laughs> well, that is just a good <laughs> bit of happenstance. Um, yeah, it's one of my favorite movies as well. <laughs> you know, you had us at hello, Dan. Um, so I will tell you that um, the, the work that you're doing seems so incredibly important. I do keep coming back to this idea of polarization and fragmentation, right? Mm -hmm. And we talk about these these concepts of common courtesies. Are you concerned that, that we're losing the commonness piece? Do you get pushback on some of these issues? Well, maybe the best way to answer that question is really where we start with cyber civics is that stuff. Like we start talking about gosh, what does it mean to be a citizen? Like in today's world, like what, what are the traits that we want citizens to have? Honesty, compassion, courage. Like we talk about what those are and how you display that already within your classroom community or your home community or your baseball team community. So we get that understanding first and then we move into the online world and say, do you want to be, have good communities there too? Like what's the downside of having a bad community? And why would you want a good community? And how would you show honesty on Snapchat? Well, to be honest about your age for once, how would you show courage on, you know, TikTok? Well, you know, by uh, maybe telling somebody that they did something inappropriate. So we, it's like leading them slowly to let's create this kind, ethical, lovely community online and off. When I think about that, I think about the priorities that you're establishing with kids, that it's about community first. And Brandon Karpf on a previous interview uh, on this podcast, he said that security is a responsibility of all of us. And building community, I think, is a responsibility of all of us as well. And I'm, I'm still trying to you know figure a lot of those things out as an adult with kids of my own. And, and what I appreciate about you starting there is that you're teaching kids to do that at a young age when they're susceptible to that idea and susceptible sounds like a negative connotation, but, but they're more open to that idea as young people. Why, why did you choose to go down that path um, of starting there? And, and why did that make so much sense to you? You know, you hit the nail on the head. It's all about developmental psychology. It's really where they are at that age. And what I would say about the whole curriculum is, you know, we really tap into, tap into where they are developmentally. You know, the fifth and sixth grade, it's all about that community. Seventh, they get a little rebellious. So you tap into that. Eighth grade, they start looking outside of themselves into bigger communities. So it's just, you know, child development and it works because, that's how kids are growing and thinking. And we want to tap into that so that when they go off to high school and we don't have as much ability to tap into that stuff, you've set these patterns within them and within their peers. Well, one of the things that I always say as a middle school principal that I'd always say to people is kids in middle school are so individualistic. They want to be their own person but they also at the same time want so badly to be part of a community that if they're ever left out, then their lives mm -hmm. are ruined, but they're fighting so hard to be independent. And it's this dichotomy that makes no sense at all, except that they're moving from being children to adults and, and they don't know how to manage it. So you add in social media and technology, and it just is like the worst possible concoction in the world because it, it brings out the worst parts of all of that. And it's just not, not healthy in so many ways for them. Yeah, you're so right. I mean, it's, it's like they're testing all the stuff that we used to test just within our little peer groups. They're testing all of this online. Mm 
in a place where it's going to be public and permanent. So it's like, there's a no win situation. And a, a good example of that is like a lot of kids, the very first social media, they'll open Instagram and they'll post a stupid picture and they'll write a ridiculous bio that's embarrassing and sometimes crude. And then they, for, they don't understand or no one's told them that even if they're private on Instagram, that picture and bio is public. And so if someone Googles them, that's going to pop up and they're going to go, what? <laughs> I mean, that's just a, such a ex perfect example of where the kids are developmentally. Like they can't think that through or they don't know. And then it comes back to haunt them later. Well, you know, and I think that's one of the, the brilliant things about focusing on the middle school period, right? Is because you have such a rich field of opportunity yeah. to address these kids. But the reality is, of course, that kids are holding devices now as early as 10 months old, right. and they're using them all the way through elementary school. And the percentage of smartphones in elementary schools is now over a third and rising. Yeah. So is would you have any concern that, that we're getting to a place where even middle school is too late for this kind of training? Well, I mean, there's so many different ways to use technology. So, I mean, what I really encourage, obviously those kids younger right now have to be on some sort of computer to do lessons, but that doesn't mean they have to have a TikTok account on their own yet, right? So there's ages and stages for all this stuff. There's great, you know, educational videos that younger kids could be watching. You could be talking about with them, but all this other stuff where, you know, you're alone with Snapchat getting news about coronavirus, that should be held off until the kids are a little bit more ready for it. So I think the biggest educational piece for parents is really to understand the different uses of technology and to really gear it towards each child. And there's, you know, there's ways to buy phones that don't have access to everything. And if your concern is, you know, getting a hold of your child when they're at someone else's house, get them a phone that doesn't have internet access that can just call you, you know? So I think that that's a big piece of the educational, the education that we have to do for parents is to teach them, you know, what's appropriate every age and stage and how they can manage it for each kid. Yeah. So one of the things that we've done is we've done, like you mentioned before, these digital on-ramps and we've allowed our kids to start texting just within our own immediate family and they're not allowed to text anybody outside wow. of the family. Then we allow them to start texting other people, aunts, uncles, grandparents, people like that, maybe a close family friend. So we moved from Alaska last year. We still have friends there. My kids played with them all the time and they want to stay in touch. And so my wife has a Marco Polo account and their mom has a Marco Polo account. And so they use the mom's Marco Polo accounts to be able to do these asynchronous uh, video chats with each other. And so we, we don't want them to think that these technologies don't exist, <laughs> but at the same time, there's no way we're giving our kids access to them um, at the age that they're, that they're at. It's just not, they're just not ready for it at all. And so being able to have little things like that, where you can introduce things, you know, and being able to say, by example, here's something that I see in your text messages, that's not appropriate, or you sent this to me and it's not appropriate. Let's talk about it rather than, yeah. you know, you're busted for it, but teaching them in that capacity really does help a lot. Totally. And that's such a smart way to do it is just, I mean, it's, it's how parenting's always been, right? Like we help our kids at every age and stage do things that they're age appropriate for and technology should be just the same. So kudos. The difference is real quick. I'll just finish my point with this. The difference is, is that we are learning the technology with them. 
which is going to be different than what our kids are experiencing because they will already know the technology and have a better, hopefully, understanding of how to introduce it to their kids. We're getting introduced at the same time as them, and that's part of the challenge we're facing. Totally, yeah. Well, and I'm just going to follow up on Jethro's point because it was basically the same but similar to this, is this idea. And and it sounds like some of what you're doing in cyber civics um, incorporates this, that we really encourage parents to turn to their children as tech specialists, if you will, that a lot of parents feel overwhelmed by the technology and a coping mechanism is to sit down with the kid and say, I'd like to learn about TikTok. Can you install it on my phone? Show me how you use it, that kind of thing. And it sounds from the civics perspective that you're doing some of the same things. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that's something that we really encourage is that when your child's old enough for any of these apps, sit down with them, download it together. All of these apps have such great safety settings, like go through them together and decide what's appropriate for your family's values. And the other thing I really encourage families to do is read those privacy policies, like read them together. Your kid might be shocked. You might be shocked, you know, and then parents will say, but, oh, my kid says it takes too much time. And then my answer to that is how much time do you think that kid's going to spend on TikTok in the next five years? Like reading the privacy policy is a drop in the bucket. So Excellent point, Diana. <laughs> yeah. and, and adults don't even read those privacy policies. So it, it'd be good for you as the adult to do it. Um, so yeah. Fred, I, I don't mean to be, to call out your age being older than me in this, but that, that piece of <laughs> advice, and I may cut this out. We'll see. <laughs> Maybe I'll leave it in, but that advice <laughs> of having your kids be tech specialists to me, it just totally does not resonate because I'm, I'm very tech savvy myself. And I feel like many people in my generation are. And so I wonder if that is, I, I just, I need more information on that. <laughs> For starters, this is audio, so you can't actually see how old I am, which is great. Phew. Um, but the, <laughs> but I will say, um, and, and the reason I continue to offer that advice is that in the conversations I have with adults and people who are parenting, my experience is that even if they're tech savvy themselves, there are still new things coming along all yeah. the time. So, you know, given your age bracket, you're probably really savvy with Facebook and, you know, MySpace and things like that. But I think that, you know, it may not be necessarily true with respect to WhatsApp or Kick or TikTok or whatever else. And this is going to be an ongoing challenge for the different generations, I would argue. Diane, I don't know if you want to weigh in on that. We're not going to make any age comments. No, no, I'm (laughs) laughing to myself because I think people are different too. Like some people are just more adept and interested in technology and some people just hate technology. And I I have a 21-year-old daughter. You think she'd be so savvy. She hates, like, she can't stand technology. It's Online learning has been a super big challenge for her because she is a people person. She wants to pick up the phone or see somebody in person. And so she's always calling me with these tech questions. And I'm like, why are you calling me? You're 21. You know? So uh, people are different as well. I think the other thing there is I've always been bothered by the term digital native and digital immigrant, because the reality is, is that our kids are not natives to technology. And your, yeah. your example is a good yeah. anecdotal evidence of that. But it's more than that, that, yeah. that everybody is an immigrant to digital things. The difference that I've seen is that kids are just not afraid of breaking stuff. 
and older people are afraid of breaking stuff. And so that's essentially what people mean, as far as I can tell when they say digital native, is that really they're not afraid of breaking something and digital immigrants are still afraid of breaking something. So your 21-year-old daughter is afraid of doing something wrong or not knowing how to do it. And so she's a digital immigrant, but I I've never liked that terminology because it makes an assumption that isn't, that isn't real. Yeah. And some people are just willing to sit behind a screen and figure things out longer than somebody who has no patience. So there's just that people are different. And I think we can argue that we're still all in this together, you know, young and old, whatever. It's just one big new world for all of us. So one, one of the things that we've found very powerful within cyber civics is we have send home parent letters with activities that align with every lesson that families have to do together. Some of my teachers demanded his homework, which I love. And I think what I've heard back, it's like, you know, from the parents, they're learning too. So these are, these are things we all have to engage in together to figure out because anyway, you cut it, the digital world is complex. There's a lot of moving parts. So none of us are going to be experts at all of it. So we can at least help each other use it better. That's, that's really well said. I, I think that, you know, obviously the ongoing need for civics and for digital citizenship basically speaks for itself. I, you know, you can't look at the status of American culture and not think that, you know, we need more of this. But in terms of, you know, your crystal ball, where do you see some of these issues and, and some of these technologies going and how will that affect your work on civics? Well, I think, um, I think that there's good prospects to stay in this business for a while <laughs> because it's not going anywhere. Thankfully, um, I, you're right. <laughs> I think um, what I'm seeing, which is, you know, I'm a Pollyanna, so what can I say? But what I'm seeing is adults, teachers that were uh, tech averse are now realizing, wow, there are some great advantages to using this stuff. I may use it more in the future, which I love. And on the other side, kids that were online constantly before are saying, okay, I'm so sick of this. I need people. I want to have real life experiences. So I really hope that we're going to meet somewhere in the middle. I think that would be really lovely. And I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Well, that, that is actually a very nice note to end this on, Diana. So I certainly yes, hope that you're right as well. Agreed. I really appreciate this conversation. I think yeah, it's Yeah, I could talk to you guys all day. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's encouraging to hear. All righty. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, cyber civics, privacy and challenges, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. If you're still listening, you must have loved this podcast. So please leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast service. And we look forward to having you for our next live episode on Monday.
There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.